If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. So glad to be back down here. You have taken a big old chunk out of that drink already. Did you notice? <laughs> yes. I know. That's why I set it down. <laughs> because if it was in my hand, it would be gone by now. <laughs> We're on, right? Are we on now? We are on. So I can legitimately say, like, because Courtney the bartender couldn't come again today, I sort of overpoured. <laughs> she overginned the drinks. It's delicious, but mm. it definitely had that afterburn yeah. feeling. And and because I, I overpoured Patrice's drink, I then, to be fair, <laughs> she had to overpour mine. <laughs> right. Which, so, and then we had to, yeah, we had to cut it with the club soda, mm-hmm. which still is still delicious. Ooh. But yeah, I mean, this is like very drinkable to me, which I have to watch out. Which is dangerous. It is very dangerous because <laughs> I will drink the whole thing and then like you know, 10 minutes later, I'm passed out. Or if I try to stand up, I immediately <laughs> fall over. And there goes all the hard work we did on that computer. Exactly. Um, oh, guys, we have been. Oh, hi, Marlea. Hi, Patrice. <laughs> Just introduce ourselves here. Uh, yes, did a lot of work this week because I have been so fucking pissed off at our audio because it's been shitty. And and I, it didn't used to be. So it was baffling because we were just like, what's different? It was, it was getting worse. And I couldn't figure out why in the hell it was getting worse. And I mean, we switched out mics. We switched out cables. Yeah, we spent we a good couple out. hours down here together. And then you spent several hours right, like separately this whole too. week. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I was just had that that pit in my stomach where I'm going to have to like invest in some analog to digital uh, recording. And I just really did not want to do that. And I'm (laughs) glad I didn't pull the trigger on that. So it ended up, if you ever do your own podcast and you have one mic that is working better than the other and you can't figure it out, it's your fucking computer. (laughs) So as soon as I switched to my old Mac and again, I had just recently had to buy a new Mac because my old Mac quit, which I'm kind of holding my breath because we are using that old Mac, but it's been worked on. Uh, the new Macs, I am so disappointed in them. Mm. They, it's like taking two steps back in the Mac computer world, I feel like. I had to spend wow. like almost $200 on adapters for the new USB-C uh, adapter and just so that all my other old adapters would work and then i'm having like this audio problem where it's being really shitty with my audio Mm. um the keys don't i mean i've got a list of things that i definitely do not like about the new Macs and how i feel like they've they've gone backwards in their design and functionality are you listening apple are you listening (laughs) probably not but there's my little tech rant and we do let me open up my little thing here 
We do have some postmortems that I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And we we were talking earlier while we were making our, I should say, while we while Marlea was making <clears throat> the drinks that um I went and watched the Meredith what's her name? Meredith No, Meredith Baxter Bernie was from uh Family Ties, right? So this oh, was Judas right. Light from Judas Light. Right. Which I also did too. It was all on YouTube and so we we're like, I have to it's called Wife Mother Murderer, I think, is what yes. it was called. And, yes. Uh, and it's, we had a link on the show notes last We do. Week. We have a link on the show notes for episode twelve. And so I sat down and watched it. And once I got over the feeling of wanting to throat punch her and her daughter for their fake Southern accents. So it's like, come on, if you're you're playing a Southerner, don't do any accent. Just don't. Because you're pissing. Don't even try. try, Because you're just pissing off all the Southerners. Right. So, you know, do the little sayings or whatnot, but just leave that fake Sunday Southern dialect at home. Do you know, though, does do the sayings really work if you're not if you're not doing if you don't actually have the legit because, you know, I say bless it all the time. And you know what? It's not the same coming from me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But if you tried to do a fake Southern accent with it, it would just be worse. So Mm -hmm. just tip. Just don't even try. I mean, if, if you're British and you're trying to do a southern accent just speak american okay <laughs> just just don't even try because all it does is it makes you unwatchable to southerners and probably to the rest of the population too because they're like what the hell and then that's what everybody thinks how we talk down here and it's you know true to some point but not like that mm-hmm. it, it's it's i don't know there's just something wrong. There's, There's something just something wrong. wrong. Something so fake about Judith it is, Light. Absolutely. And her daughter. Her daughter is really the one that drove me kind of over the edge. <laughs> well, hers, hers just kind of, she slid in and out. Yeah. Like, too. You know, she it. wasn't consistent. So it's like every once in a while she would like draw something and then like she'd sound like she's from Boston. Right. (laughs) Which I totally, you know, I wasn't paying, I was paying, you know, attention more to like the storyline when she would like talk like that. But then when she's like throwing some big Southern like dialogue, I was just like, oh, fuck. (laughs) But totally watchable. Like I was telling Marley a little bit earlier, it's kind of like, you know, 80s after school special Mm -hmm. in the sense that. With a little sex thrown in. With a little sex thrown in. They were a little heavy on like, really heavy petting heavy petting and drawing that out when they are pretty quick and good at editing so as soon as i started getting bored they quickly like edited and switched scenes so Mm -hmm. you know my attention through the whole thing i was able to watch the whole thing no problem um, but yeah, the bedroom scenes were a little rough and I did fast forward through them because that's like, <laughs> not rough in the fun way, not rough in the fun <laughs> way. Just like I just I had to fast forward them because there's no way I could like get through watching those two. No. Making googly eyes at each no. other in the bedroom. Nope. In their fake southern accents. Poor Luckily, John. he didn't. He didn't have one, but no, that's right. He didn't. He didn't have one. Right. But he was supposed to be from New Hampshire. Right. So I guess that he. He got out of that. Exactly. So that was fun. And we also had a bunch of people comment afterwards. And um, one of the comments, and I'm just taking this from what was commented on Facebook or Instagram. I can't remember which one. Probably Facebook. um, That uh, Mary Healy is actually buried next to the husband that she murdered. I think that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also we've had we had listeners who said that their grandmother worked 
um, with her and actually lived within a block of her. Oh, yeah, that's right. And that she apparently went to the same church. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in the community down here, she's very much like remembered by people who, you know, engaged in... um, I don't even know where I was going with that. Just living in Anniston at the time. So yeah. there's a lot of people, you know, had run-ins with her. And, and uh, Teresa, my friend Teresa, who um, has commented on some of the stuff. She's the one who corrected us about Chocolaca Road way back <laughs> Hi, Teresa. Oh, she, yes. um She said she had overheard some coworkers talking about it. And um, she was like, you should check into this. But I think that uh, John, her her second husband right. the one who believed that she was her own twin and like right. moved to Aniston when she got incarcerated her yeah when and she like, went to yeah, trial totally and, and, and apparently attempted murder yeah I mean you know the oh, sweet John apparently gullible John moved to Aniston well we knew he moved to Aniston but mm-hmm. apparently got shot in the hotel that he was living at while she was in you jail know, in jail yeah he like true and loyal stayed by her side um, and then even after she died, mm-hmm. so she died like after the escape and, uh, even after she died, he stayed in Aniston living in that hotel and was murdered there. I wonder how just, how do you, what are you going to stay in a hotel for? I don't know. Especially, you know, he came from he, coastal Florida. That's where he was like, had a I mean, job. in the movie, he looked really happy. Yeah. I was I like, had know. a wife. And why wouldn't you move <clears throat> back to Florida or New Hampshire or, or, you know, I don't know. There were, there were a lot, there are a lot of sad, like people who have like lost a lot through that story. And we, you know, we, yes. we laugh at it, but I mean, those were real people. No, absolutely. I mean, she's like her, her, we couldn't tell that story without being just like, about what she did but i mean those are real people who had to deal with all that shit and you know i feel bad for i feel horrible for her daughter having i don't know what what happens to your psyche if your mom like tries to poison you your whole life and i feel bad for john because i feel like john was nice and like really just just childlike maybe and and really really got fucked over in this whole thing so anyway yay way to start that off with a bummer sorry well i mean we're we're talking about murders you know yeah pretty much there's no besides like the odd alien probing there's really like no (laughs) fun things oh just wait just you wait (laughs) okay also, um, I went on, I always check uh, just to make sure the website's going, because if our website goes down, our podcasts go down, mm-hmm. just a little FYI. Um, and so I always like kind of check every other day or every day to make sure everything's cool. And I went on iTunes to make sure it was pulling our feed in. And we've gotten a couple of more reviews. Oh, and are we, they good? This is the latest review. And I tell you, it gave me like all the feels. <gasps> Let me just, I just hope I can, I hope I can live up to what this person thinks that we are. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not, I'm not intimidated at all now. exactly. Right. <clears throat> so it says Patrice and Marlea, and this is from Rad Wings. I have no idea who that is. Mm-mm. Patrice and Marlea understand the podcast audience. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, we want to feel like we are part of the party, not just listening to them have a party. These two have the perfect blend of telling creepy, spooky stories, having a good time, and still keeping the fun close enough to on topic uh, where it doesn't feel like I'm eavesdropping on too friends um and their inside jokes 
Oh. This is quickly becoming my go-to podcast and when I want a good dose of creepy, spooky, and fun. Yay! I know! Oh, thank you! Give you the feels. You are part of our party. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I was like, I don't know if I know our audience or not. I mean, like, we kind of started doing this just because we felt like it'd be fun. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Because we wanted to tell stories and we wanted to tell each other stories. Um, And And I like listening to myself talk. (laughs) (laughs) I probably don't like listening to myself talk as much. But I like listening to you talk and I love your stories. And so. Well, we have fun. So I'm glad that comes off because we always do have a good time. We do. It is is the highlight of my week. I know. Me too. I was like, I came down here and I just like breathed a big sigh of relief for this. I was like, ah. Exactly. It's my happy place. It really is. Um, Me too. So. Okay, okay, let's not get all mushy. Come on. Okay, let's. I oh know we got business to get to, but full, <laughs> full disclosure. Okay, I'm, I'm just and this is I'm this is the only time I'm going to do this, but I'm, I'm going to disclose this to you. Uh oh. So, Chad got your text. Oh my god! Right. And I'm so excited. I was like, I was like, I hadn't picked. Well, I had, I had a couple of things in mind, right? And I hadn't like decided definitely what I was going to do this week. And of oh, course now, this is tomorrow. We should we should pause real quick. Mm-hmm. For anybody who hasn't listened before or who didn't hear this part before, when we choose our stories, we don't tell each other in advance. I text Patrice's Chad and just give him like a line of what I'm doing and then she'll tell him and then he'll be our go between so right, that neither so of us knows. We we won't do like the odd chance that we'll do the same thing yes. because we don't want to do the same Sorry, thing. Sorry, please continue. No, thank you for explaining that. Okay, so I asked him like I usually do, um, and I kind of ran by what I was going to do, and he's like, oh my God, Marleas is epic. <laughs> he's like, and, and this is like the first time he's ever like really talked about the podcast, and he's like, we've had like some conversation about this. Yeah, he actually texted me, but yes. this is the first time. he Normally, I don't even know if he gets it or not, because he doesn't respond. Right. And like this That's time, so he was like, um, what? <laughs> <laughs> So when he said that and was so excited about that, I was like, fuck. (laughs) So I do admit that I kind of strong armed my husband into telling me (laughs) what it is. And I promise (laughs) I will not do that again unless he shows so much emotion like he did, like enthusiasm towards it. Um, I will try not to. Because I, I'm happy I did, because then we had a conversation about it and some good laughs. Um, but I hate that it kind of ruined the surprise. It's okay. Okay. Unless you... Now, did you did you run down the rabbit hole? Did you look into it I didn't. Okay. And that's, that's the thing. Then I didn't want good. to. I, I wanted the story. It is still pretty primo. Okay. <laughs> and that's why I'm excited that you're going first, because I'm probably going to finish this drink and be totally blitzed by the time uh, that mine comes around. This... So this so, is, hold on. Let me sit with my drink. Okay, you get your drink. Just oh my god, the look on your face is awesome. So this is how this came. Like <laughs> it was probably like a day. It was probably Sunday, like the day after we recorded last time. I was just going through my Facebook feed, and I follow Vice Magazine, and um, <clears throat> and uh, this this article popped up, and I was like, no. <laughs> 
and I clicked on it and I and I I read like the first like three lines and immediately just in my brain I was like, please be in the South, please be in the South, please be in the South. <laughs> And you know what? There's a bit of a cheat on this because it begins in Georgia. Okay. The whole story is not in Georgia. So, you know, we, we met, met the rules. I was like, you know what? If the payoff wasn't so big, right. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be taking this chance. But, but to me, the payoff on this one is pretty gargantuan. I swear, y'all are probably going to be thinking it's way bigger than it is now because I'm just like, <laughs> to me, this one just blew my mind a little bit. <clears throat> so, um, I'm going to try and tell this so I don't ruin it flat out, but, um, okay. So I, I, there was this vice article. It was about this guy named David Huggins. And, uh, right now today he's still alive. He's in his mid seventies. He lives in Hoboken, New Jersey. I believe in the same house as his ex-wife who ha- he hasn't been with since like, I think the late eighties. Um, I think they've been divorced that long. Um, he is like a bald, super skinny, almost frail looking guy. Um, he's one of those folks that like you can tell that he's got all his original teeth you know, <laughs> because of the way his mouth moves. Um, and he, you know, it, he has usually a pretty long, scraggly white beard. He wears glasses. He's a pretty nondescript guy. He works at a deli down the street from his house um, part time. Um, he has like a VHS collection, specifically VHS. I don't know why he's dedicated to VHS of like sci-fi and horror films, like several thousand movies. And like, if you would ask him about any of them, he'd be able to pull them straight off the shelf and tell you who was in it and when it was made and all this kind of stuff. Um, but he's not from Hoboken. He grew up in a far on, on a farm in a farming community in Paulding, Georgia, in um the 50s and that's what i was like man paulding county georgia is like where roswell and um like alpharetta i think and sandy springs are all in there and that's like metro atlanta now that's like atlanta suburbs but i guess maybe in the maybe in the 50s or maybe it's a larger county than i'm aware of i just remember those cities Mm -hmm. um so in the 50s it was it was primarily a farming community So you threw me off with Roswell thrown in there. I know, not Roswell like Alien Roswell, but Roswell, um, Georgia. Right. Um, So he grew up in this farming community. His parents drank a lot, both of his parents. And, um, you know, here I take my, let me take a (laughs) sip of gin. Um, Mm -hmm. He said they also hit him a lot. Mm. You know, he he got the belt a lot. He got like really heavy switches a lot. Angry drunks. Angry drunks. Um, his parents fought all the time. His dad cheated on his mom all the time. Um, Winners. And, yeah. yeah, right. I mean, like probably. Yeah. And he says, you know, growing up was like hell. He yeah. said it was like hell living with his fa- family. Um, so uh, when he was 19, he moved from Georgia to New Jersey to be an art student, um, which is interesting because I'm like, I'm there there's not a whole lot of information I could find about like his childhood. And you know, what's funny is I feel like I could probably figure out a way to get his phone number and just call him and ask him this stuff. Cause I would like to, oh, like, wow. I really would. but, um, that would be amazing. <clears throat> Record it. I, yeah. If, if I do, you know, I really should. But, um, you know, he said he, he moved up there. He's, he's in this art. What was it called? Art student Alliance. Um, he was in an arts, you know, organization and, you know, he was, he's 19, he's friendly, but people wouldn't date him. They thought he was weird. Art um, student. Yeah. And, you know, 
And I think he was kind of weird, judging yeah. by all the rest of what happens here in the story. Student. <laughs> so he, um, you know, he goes through, you know, he's he becomes an I guess he becomes an artist. Um, it didn't say whether he had a day job or anything like that back then, but he got married. His wife's name is Janice, I believe. And I think his son's name is Michael. So he had a little boy um, and, you know, lived, I guess, what he thought was a fairly normal life, if a little bit like, you know, off balance. And then in August 17th, 1987, he started remembering things. Um, so 87, can we put an age to about how old he was? Let's see. Because I can't do math in my head. Let's see. He was eight years old in 1952. So I guess he was, that would make him born in what, 46? So in 87, he was 40. Okay. About for God, about our age. What am I going to remember now? <laughs> um, so the things he remembered, like, flipped his shit out. I okay. mean, he thought he was going crazy. He started feeling watched. He had paranoia and anxiety. He had heard about this author named Bud Hopkins. He's a paranormal hypnotist okay. and um, a ufologist, I guess. Um, and he had written a book called Intruders, The Incredible Visitations at Copley Woods, which I think anybody who, like, follows UFOs probably recognizes all these things right away. It sounds like it's canon. Right. Um, so, um, so David gets this book and there's a chapter in it on sexual encounters with aliens. And as he started reading this chapter, these memories like flooded his head and scared the shit out of him. So let's go back and start talking about the things he started to remember. So this goes back to his childhood, too. So right. that's what I was going to say. Was this something that maybe happened in Georgia? Yeah, he started seeing things in his childhood. He, he called it seeing things. His dad called it seeing things. And it, the first time he told his dad about it, his dad, like, whipped the shit out of him. Um, his first encounter was when he was eight years old. It was 1952. And he was standing in a field and um, somebody called his name, called him by name, like, hey, David. And he turned around and there was a little hairy guy with large glowing yellow eyes, like walking towards him. And he said he saw it and it didn't really, I don't think this one like actually came up to him or ran at him or anything, but he said that he looked in its eyes and he felt like he was in the alien's eyes looking at himself. And then the second encounter, also in 1952, a giant insect thing that looked like a praying mantis um, he found it in his barn. He went into the barn to do chores or something like that. And the thing sprayed him with gray liquid and he ran away screaming and the liquid evaporated and he never knew what it was for. <laughs> oh my God. Um, third, 1953, he heard a sound like a cow, which is not unusual because they were in a field and there were cows. It was a farm community. Yeah, yeah. it was a farm community. And then he looked and he saw a head popping up from behind a bush and, um, there was a bright light. It was like a little, like with, it was a you know, a small bald head with large eyes and um, a bright light came on him and he fell down in a faint. And when he woke up, there were little gray people all around him. He heard three loud beeps. And then all of a sudden he was like standing chest deep in weeds at another part of the, the property and there was nobody else there. So, okay. <laughs> Let me just ask questions here. Okay. Were these encounters or were these sexual encounters? These are encounters. Okay. We haven't gotten... Okay. We haven't gotten to puberty yet. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. Oh, no, it gets better. Okay. I, I promise. I, I didn't promise. know if you were just kind of glazing Nope, over. I'm not. Oh, okay. no. Believe me, I'm not going to glaze. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Let me drink some more. So, uh, so the fourth encounter, again, he's eight or nine years old still. He said all these blue guys drop from the sky and just run full speed at him. 
and he races away, hides behind his house, and their house is built so that it's like, I don't, you, you've probably seen farmhouses like this, but it's like kind of up on blocks. It's like the right. house doesn't have a foundation on the ground. It's like raised up. Mm-hmm. And so he could see the under the space. house to the other mm-hmm. side. And he said he could see all their legs wandering around on the other side waiting for him. But then they just walked away. They didn't bother him. But that, and that was the time that he told his dad and his dad mm-hmm. like beat him. Right. And he went <clears throat> later that night, they came to his bedroom. Like he saw him out the window and they came into his bedroom and they took him out and he floated up into into a craft mm-hmm. in the sky he said and a woman came in like a tall alien woman and um excuse me um she had a long wand that she thrust up his nose and he said it was like she'd put something up there like a tracking device or something like you track whales is what he said and um he said it hurt and when he told her that it hurt she like looked distressed and she took his pain away immediately. Um, and he said that the craft that they had, he'd like, he'd seen them, like he described them as like round. He described them as oval. He described them a bunch of different ways, bright and dark, depending on when he saw them. But he always said they were silent. So he's like, if you're walking around in the street in a city and there are car horns blaring, if one of these arrives, it's not just that it doesn't make any noise. It's that all other noise stops when it's there. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and I'm going to like, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to say this just yet, but <laughs> the descriptions are worth so much. The reason why he has these clear ideas of all of these things is because later on he gets permission from these beings to paint all the experiences that he's had. So he has paintings of every single one of these things that has ever happened to him. He's painted every encounter. He's painted all the beings that he's seen. And so, like, you see this, he has, you know, and I'll, I'll put these oh, on. Yeah. And you know what? Actually, I can show them to you right now because I pulled them up on my computer so you could look at them. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yes, I'm curious. He has a painting of this encounter where they shove the thing up his nose. And the woman alien, he always paints her the same. She's, like, super tall. She's really pale. She has a very human physique. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, at this time, she's covered in a long blue robe. She's always covered in a long blue robe. And she's got, like, a fucking Cleopatra-style wig on every time. Okay. Um, let, me, let me just show you. You can just scroll right on through these. It is, it is something else. Okay. Here. Um... So he's he's using his art <laughs> for for personal, I guess, um, oh. healing. Oh wow! Right. <laughs> so I mean, you really can't appreciate the full like impact of the story without seeing these. So I've copied several of them to for us to post and share, and I'll I'll copy like his website and everything. Um, Damn. He said the beings that he saw were not hostile; they were scary. Right. Um, but he said there were little gray ones, little grays and little blues is what he called them. They were workers. There's a tall, thin guy with a, like a knob or a bun or something on the back of his head. Um, he's supposed the millennial to be, of the group. Right? Yeah, I guess. Right. He's like, he's like the hipster alien. <laughs> and then um, there's like the insect guy. He's a leader. And there are others of him. Yeah, it's like, where'd the Prune Menace come in? He's in there, believe me, the number of paintings, like, I feel like I saw so many paintings when I was looking at this, and if you search him, there are even more than you've seen before. I mean, he has so many. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay, sorry. You keep going. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, and the female is just one of many, and some of them are, like, gigantic tall. Um, So... Uh, his 21st encounter with these creatures, he's 17 years old, it's 1960, 
Oh, wait, the, the, you know, this is all coming straight from him, and I'm thinking the numbers don't add up, so I don't know how well he remembers it. Sometime, early 60s maybe, he's 17. Um, he has t- learned to call this female that always visits him, her, her name is Crescent, that's what he calls her. And so he's 17, he sees Crescent in the woods, he walks out to her, she tells him to lay down, takes his pants down, gets on top of him, and has alien sex with him. His yeah, first experience. A there is a picture. There of is that. a picture. Yes. It's, it's a, yeah, there is a loving, <laughs> actually, it's not loving. I it's think not what, loving. I what like... makes the painting so interesting is because they're, the emotion in them is really complex, I think, and kind of weird and a little bit scary. Yeah. Um, so uh, he says his climax was very painful. He passed out immediately after. He woke up with his pants around his knees and no memory of what had happened. Um, and you know, so all these things are things that he's just now remembering at the age of 40. Um, so that was his, like he, that was his cherry popping moment right there. Mm-hmm. Like was this like Cleopatra wigged, like blue robed alien woman who, you know, he's painted nude multiple times, multiple times. She's built man. I mean, like, she I'm is. not, not going to knock her. She is, yeah, she no. is pretty hot. But, um, then, uh, so his 26th experience was after he moved to New Jersey. So they followed him when he left. Well, he has the tracking device. He, him, right? I, he apparently, yeah, they can't they can't not follow him. It was 1965. There was a transit strike in New Jersey and so <laughs> he was walking in the rain and he was trying to hitchhike and there was a black car that came up and a woman inside who drove him home. And you know, he doesn't remember these experiences, so he didn't recognize her when he got in the car. That night he dreamed that there was a woman and he had sex with her, of course, because that's what we do. And um he heard her say, we'll be back tonight. And every single night for months, he dreamed this woman and she said, we'll be back tonight. And every single night for months, he had sex with this alien in his dreams. And he painted all of these encounters. So like, okay, the 41st, he's, he's like counting all of these encounters. Um, 1966, he was like, okay, I'm finally going to try and believe that this is actually a real thing. So he buys flowers puts him in his apartment, says, if she's actually real, these are hers. They're for her. When I get up, they won't be here. Got up the next morning, the flowers were gone. This is what he says. So that night he cleaned his entire house before he went to bed, like he was having house guests. <laughs> and he went to, like, he was getting ready for a date, right? Because, right. like, this is the only girl he's ever fucked. So he's right? like, okay. You know, like I said, he didn't date people. And, you know, you're thinking, like, okay, he's just now remembering all this stuff in his 40s. It kind of, like... I wonder why nobody dated you when you were in art school. You know, right. I mean, like you might have been a, like a little tad impacted by all this shit or weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the next night after that, like they had a dream and they rubbed their foreheads together. And it was like he said, like the most erotic experience he had had that he's like he said, because there's a movie about this, too. Of course, I watched the entire thing. And um <laughs> <laughs> And he said, he says in the movie, he says, if you've never rubbed your head against your lover's head, you should really try it because it's an extremely intimate experience. I was like, I don't know if my lovers have like the kind of brain like that, like works by osmosis to like whatever it is that this woman's brain did this alien woman looking at this nude picture of the of this alien Mm -hmm. and i'm not gonna lie she kind of looks like a naked woman version of somebody from kiss (laughs) i couldn't totally see that (laughs) like not one of the lead people but maybe like the drummer (laughs) 
We should maybe do a side by side comparison. <laughs> we Post that on Instagram somewhere. <laughs> oh, bless oh, you, David. So, um, yeah, he says, so he starts describing Crescent. You know, she looks human. She's got long, dark, dark, scary claw nails. You see it in some of the paintings, but not all. Mm-hmm. Um, large eyes, pale skin, like we said. You know, Cleopatra hair. Right. Um, and he starts thinking of her as his girlfriend because, you know, that's Everyone. what you think of people who come every night and, and fuck have you. sex with you, um, right? Yeah. So she's always on top. I was like, oh my God, she's like a man's dream. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> you don't have to do anything, baby. <laughs> you just lay there. Um, and uh, he said basically, when she's on top of him, he's paralyzed. He can't really do anything, anyways. And I'm like, how does that work exactly? There is a painting that he did. <laughs> You may not see it in there because I think it's kind of hard to find. But there is a painting of uh, Crescent. And I can't remember if it's one of the insect beings or if it's another woman standing on either side of him, ejaculating him into a cup on a table. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, and he's and I, this mild mannered like 70 year old man. Oh, my God. And he just seems so sweet. And here's these pictures of like this like erotic alien porn um and so um anyway so this is what he's this is what's going on with him at this time so 1967 he's already painting he's gotten permission from them to start painting things and he said his wall opened to reveal crescent and she's freaking out and all he could hear her say in his head was the baby's dying and he you know he's in love with her i think really like and he yells show me the baby show me the baby and um she she like brings it and he she's holding it and it's like limp and she's holding it like under its arms and he tells her that's not how you hold babies <laughs> and so he tells her how to cradle it and then he asks can i come to you and help you with this and she says no and he's like well i know how to do it so he goes over and he makes himself pass out on his bed <laughs> and the next thing he knows he's in the alien craft with crescent and the insect being who is super pissed that he has come against their wishes uh-huh and um, so he goes over and he touches the baby that she's still holding and the baby moves when he touches it. And he's like, it's almost like static electricity or something. And so the insect's like, oh, OK. And he takes he's like, come with me. And he takes David to a room that is filled from floor to ceiling with David babies. Hybrid David alien babies. What? Floor to ceiling. And he goes and he touches all the babies and he says, whose are these? And the insect says, they are yours. So he has been propagating a race of hybrid alien people beings. Um, For what purpose? We don't know. <laughs> and here's here's one of the things that um, here's one of the things that I think is interesting. Like if you when if and when because you know I know you are all going to look at our feed and try and see these photos because that's what we do, right? Like I'm telling you about alien sex and like, and like alien Cleopatra boobs. You're going to be there. Inquiring minds want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. Like I have, you know what? No judgment. I'm all about it. Y'all like (laughs) we're, (laughs) this is, this this is how we roll. (laughs) But I know that you're going to look at these and then you're going to look for more (laughs) because that's what we do. And, uh, (laughs) Oh my God. And you'll see, if you look at enough of them, you'll see that there is a really kind of disturbing trend in these paintings. If you get used to them and you kind of, you recognize the color palette, you recognize the similarities from one to the other, but there are people who have described his paintings as traumatic. And I really think that comes across because one of the things you see fairly often, not all the time, but fairly often is this Crescent character grins and laughs at him a lot. 
And so like when you're asking like, what's the purpose of these babies? I'm like, I don't know, but I don't know that she's 100% like your friend. Right. You know, I mean, so, um, and there was one time shortly after that, there was one time that David like completely flipped because he was sleeping and he broke down because he was convinced that one of his babies died. Mm. And he just was like sobbing and could not be, you know, consoled. And Crescent came to him and like tried to comfort him and said, everything is fine. He heard the words in his head again and again, everything is fine. And she she ended up having to come to him and show him that the baby was still alive. And that like later on, he saw one of the children like as it grew and it looked like him. You know, there's a painting of him and Crescent sitting in two stools with the baby between them. And the baby looks exactly like a tiny version of him. Right. I say that. Um so oils oils on canvas just mm-hmm. you know um so uh anyway he starts remembering all these things we're back in 1987 mm-hmm. all of a sudden all these things are flooding in he starts remembering them he's, he's already married at this point he's right? married with, with a kid. son mm-hmm. right. and um he's recognizing that uh this is going to be this is going to have to be part of his life like this stuff is taking over his brain and he needs to paint these things because he considers it a form of dealing with trauma. And he's um, like, honey, I've got to tell you something. Exactly. He has exactly that conversation. Mm-hmm. And she divorces him a couple months later. Well, I completely understand. I that. do, too. She said he was crazy. She said she didn't want to hear it. And, you know, and I don't want to hear it as one of those things that comes out. Like, I think they probably had a couple issues already because mm-hmm. you don't usually hear. I don't want to hear it. But, um. So anyway, he had, you know, they divorced. She thought he was crazy. Um, When he started painting, finally, he just couldn't stop. Like, Mm. he painted and painted and painted, but he started sleeping. And he hadn't been sleeping. Uh, Um, Like, this whole time that he's been seeing the aliens? It sounded like he had never really felt like he got good sleep until he started painting. So he painted and he started sleeping better. There, I mean, so there are paintings of these things that I've described, these encounters. There are paintings of UFOs over Manhattan. There are paintings of portals that open in walls and aliens that come in cellophane packages. There are paintings of... like monster women and him teaching his own babies how to nurse like there is there is is a painting of him suckling from his like his alien girlfriend while the babies watch um and you know they it's he starts sitting down with the paintings and you know they just keep on as soon as he sits down it just comes out he said one time he actually did one that he made up Mm -hmm. and he said he destroyed it because the beings were super pissed Right. And they were like, you only paint what happened. And he burned that painting. So I'm curious to see what that was like. You know, and here's the thing. Okay. The documentary that I'm talking about, this movie that I watched, that, by the way, his art has been shown in multiple places. Mm-hmm. Um, people buy it. Um, the documentary that was created is called Love and Saucers. Mm-hmm. And there's there's Saucer. an art book. There's an art book that you can buy for about $20 on Amazon. You know, it's called to casually exactly. have out on your coffee table. Casual, yes. For, the, the, the art book is called Love in an Alien Purgatory, The Life and Fantastic Art of David Huggins. Um, it's put together by a ufologist and who happens to be an old neighbor of his. Um, and, you know, you watch this documentary, which I really do highly recommend, believe it or not, like, I'm fascinated by this guy. And I think the reason that I am is um, not only does the documentary only take... Now, I understand that this is a manipulative documentary trick. Right. It takes his view 
and it doesn't really allow for um, dissenting views. Though they did contact his ex-wife, and she refused to be. Right. You um, know, I have actually heard about this guy like mm. when it first came out oh yeah when like all of this like was came out in the news or whatever and i gave it all of about two minutes <laughs> of my attention because somebody like a psychiatrist or somebody said that this was probably he was abused as a child yeah. sexually and this is how he like manifested uh a coping mechanism mm-hmm. to deal with it. And so after I had that, I was like, okay. And then I just like didn't pay it any attention. You know, and I don't necessarily think that that's untrue. Right. But um, what's interesting is that because he has such a voice in this documentary, like it's an effective coping mechanism for him. Right. So like whether, whether he had alien encounters. Right. Or whether he has had to create like a very, very serious very unusual way of dealing with childhood trauma. Right. This seems to be like a very humble, very down to earth dude who 100% buys what he is selling. Right. And that's, what's fascinating to me about it. Right. Exactly. You know, it's like, if you watch him and listen to him talk, he is so likable. Right. And like, it's just really, and I mean, that's why I was saying, like, you know, I could probably call him and he would answer my question because I really do think he would. Right. I really do. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just, that's what's fascinating to me. And that's one of those things. It's like we do sometimes write things off because they're coping mechanisms, but I'm like, you know, if it's an effective coping mechanism, right. if it that's works for him, like, yeah, that's kind of amazing in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously an audience for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There is a big audience for it. Um, you know, they interviewed people like his boss at the deli, um, his neighbors. There are a lot of people who say they believe him because they know who he is. Right. You know, and they're like, well, I, you know, he's a good guy. I, I wouldn't question it. Right. I wouldn't question it. Um, he's never been on medication by his own admission. He's never been hospitalized or institutionalized as far as anybody knows. He says he's never even been sick. Um, you know, because the aliens have cured him. I, it sounds like maybe he's, you know, for whatever reason. For whatever he reason. also doesn't look like he eats a lot. Or, you know, I mean, like he's probably living a very healthy, like, um, lifestyle, right? I guess. But um, I think one of the one of the last things that I'll say about this really is that um, in the documentary, they interviewed, um, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce his name right, Jeffrey Creepall, who has written, it's K-R-I-P-A-L. He's written a lot of books on, like, issues like this. But he's actually the professor of philosophy and religious thought. Um, and former chair of Department of Religious Studies at Rice University. Interesting. And one of the things that he said was that the history of religion is all about weird things coming from the sky and doing shit to people. Absolutely. Burning bush. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they used to say it was angels and demons because that was the concept that they spoke in. And he's like, the concept that we tend to speak in now is Mm sci-fi. I mean, if, if things are coming from the sky... They're aliens. So, I mean, he kind of compares whatever it is that has happened to David, whether it was something that happened in childhood that he's coping with now, or whether it really is something that happened over the course of many years. He um, he compares it to a sacred experience mm-hmm. that he said, you know, they tend to be terrifying and they tend to be ecstatic because you're being broken open by something. Wow. And you look at those paintings, man, and you cannot question that that's what's happening to this dude. Right. So anyway, that's my fucking story. <laughs> Epic. And, Chad uh, was not wrong. Oh my God. I was just like, please, I want to use this one so bad. Um, there we go. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Excellent. Let's take a break and we'll be back in a sec. Okay. 
Okay. That was the noise of me, like, loudly sipping my gin. We're back. And we, like, freshened up our drinks. Mm -hmm. And I'm a little... I really wish you would have come last. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this is going to be a letdown. And no, also, it's going to be good. I just, like, drank a whole full glass of this. <laughs> That's going to make your story so much fun. But my story is really more, like, it's factual, so I have to get shit straight. Okay. Which is always a danger for me, because I don't get shit straight. Well, we have a lot of loyal listeners who will correct our shit. And, and right. so we can just rely on them. Hopefully you'll be able... If it ain't straight, at least it's funny. That's right. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Oh, my God. But, so, as you do, you go down a rapid hole. We're going to Tennessee pretty soon. So, we're going to Chattanooga. Spring break! Spring break! And so I was really determined to do something on Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. And I can find just find fuck all on chattanooga i've had that too like, i had the same thing i was like what Do like, y'all there's no hauntings? there's like no there's no infamous people there's no really strange stuff i mean they got a couple of strange stuff but there's really not a whole lot of backstory maybe like one or two things but i kind of wanted to save it and just the odd chance that we do go to chattanooga mm-hmm. at some point you know what? I should do a shout out now because our my friends Marcy and Mariah who live in Chattanooga now. Oh, and I, you know, y'all, you'd be looking out for us because I know you're yes. listening. So. so yeah, so <laughs> right. So I want to go there and like actually, you know, look for local lore while I'm there and talk to people before awesome. I do anything because. A lot of the times I'm researching stuff and I'll do it and then I'll like even go into more research afterwards because yeah. I'm curious and I find out all this shit. I'm like, damn, I wish I should have put that in the show kind of thing. <laughs> um, so I'm holding off on Chattanooga. But one of the things that Chattanooga has is a... Uh, choo-choo? It does have a choo-choo. <laughs> but it has an abandoned insane asylum. No, and that's got me down this rabbit hole oh, here. Fun. <laughs> so that was my insane laugh. Just so you know. <laughs> oh my god, should have like upped the size of the text on this, y'all. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, so this week, um, let me just start this way. In 2012, in Jackson, Mississippi. On the grounds of the University of Mississippi Medical Center. University of Mississippi is basically Ole Miss. Okay. The university is located... This is more information you should ever want to know. <laughs> located in Oxford, Mississippi. But they have a medical center down in Jackson. Okay. Which is a couple of hours south of where the university actually is. Gotcha. So it's a little weird that way. Okay. So crews were working on a new parking lot there. And they discovered a pine coffin with bone fragments. Oh. And it comes to come to find out that there was about 65 more coffins that was unearthed by this crew. Or actually, 65? 65. But I don't think it was unearthed by, sorry, the crew. Um, I think once they found the bones, they turned it over to people there. Investigators or something. Investigators, university and stuff. Well, um, people from the university came over, and um, what it actually was is they found the cemetery for the Mississippi State Lunatic Asylum. Oh, my God. uh, That they knew was located 
um, the, the, the actual building is where the new um, medical center is now, but they never really knew where the cemetery was because it was an unmarked cemetery. <laughs> now they know. And now they know. I love that it's a lunatic. It's not even insane asylum. It's the lunatic right. asylum. Well, there's a story behind that, too. Oh, cool. And I'll, I'll get to that. Um, so the state had long known about the existence of the cemetery because there was hand-drawn maps from like the 19th century, but they weren't exactly sure because, again, um, people, patients were buried on the grounds and it was largely unmarked graves. Oh, that's so sad. Right. So the beginning. So prior to the late 18th century, mental illness, um, was basically termed, um, you know, they, they were called lunatics or even idiots. Yeah. Yeah. Before then. And they weren't considered really worthy of public concern. Hysterics. Yeah. Lunatics. Exactly. And people with mental illness frequently like wandered the streets or either they were kept locked up, um, in family homes or like the violent, um, psychotic mental illness was sometimes even chained to the floors of jails. So they were really poorly handled, um, before, you know, the thinking of the 18th, was it 18th century? They're still fucking poorly handled now, man. Like, damn, look at the streets of Alabama. We've regressed. The homeless population and the mentally ill population pretty much coincide. We have definitely regressed. Right. So, However, um, the Mississippi State Lunatic Asylum opened in 1850 with the help and guidance. Again, 1850, this is before the Civil War, um, with the help and guidance of the social reformer Dorothea Dix. Oh, I know that name. Yes. So I had to go look her up. I I heard the name before. I was going to say, I I wouldn't be able to tell you what she did. I don't really know exactly what she did. So, Dorothea Dorothea Dix. Dorothea Di- yeah. <laughs> Dorothea. Dorothea. Thank you. Dee <laughs> Dee. Dee Dee. Was an early 19th century activist who drastically changed the medical field during her lifetime. She championed causes for both mentally ill and indigenous populations. And by doing this work, she openly challenged the 19th century notions of reform and illness. Additionally, Dix helped um, recruit nurses for the Union Army during the Civil War, and as a result, she transformed the field of nursing. So she was a fucking badass who I was going to say, shit, man, she kept and, busy. And was busy. She didn't have kids, I bet. Did she? Probably <laughs> I not. I should look that up. <laughs> Probably not. Although it's kind of funny how they kind of slightly backhandedly referred to her as former school teacher. School marm. School marm. Yeah. When you're talking about like all of this badass shit that she did. To try and like delegitimize what she's done, right? Exactly. (laughs) Like, you know, this woman that was, you know, a teacher. Anyway, um, she was known for both treating the Confederate and Union soldiers, um, a practice which gained her a lot of respect for many. So during, obviously, she was on the Union side during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But if there was a patient, it was a patient. It wasn't, you know, one side or the other. It was somebody that needed help. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was known as the angel of the madhouses. She uh, helped oversee and open several uh, insane asylums during the time, more so up northeast mm-hmm. than down in Mississippi. But she was definitely uh, influential, and I think she even came down to oversee, or as far as kind of um, a uh, consultant. Oh, okay. For this, 
Okay, so she was known as Angel of the Madhouses, and she'd been visiting Mississippi and declared that the state's mental ill, uh, mentally ill and developmentally disabled lived in jails or dungeons. So she's basically all horrible human beings for mm. treating, you know, mental illness and disabilities, which is not a mental illness, um, like this. So the insane asylum was built around the 1850s and it started out as like a hundred plus acres uh, on a hundred plus acres and ended up by the end right before they closed to become like about a 1400 acre uh, formal penal farm which Oof. had basically <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> I know penal so I looked up penal because I mean you kind of know what penal is it's just a horribly simple word oh, oh yeah it's just We've, so bad it's but like it, when you say pianist right <laughs> like, exactly it's like gutter minds. so pian, penal meaning like like of, incarceration, of incarceration. In, but of farm so like is this like where forced labor of, it, it in, was basically like the patients who lived there also farmed the land okay. so that they could be self-supported um <laughs> I read like some uh, back history about uh, like the building and how much it cost. And it was about five million dollars to build this back in that time. Uh, holy shit. And so they were saying uh, that it it started the place started out in debt and it never fully recovered. Whew. Um, Damn, I can't even imagine what like the five million dollars then. Right. Well, I've got pictures. There's, oh, my there's, God. And, and let me, I'll talk about that in a sec. Go, go. So um, the Santa Asylum followed the Kirkbride plan, which is an architectural layout devised by the psychiatrist Thomas Kirkbride. And it was supposed to really like, you know, ease the mind of the patients. It believe he designed um, the asylum as far as like it got lots of sunlight. So he believed in fresh air oh, and sunlight nice. for the patients as far as, you know, how to help uh, them or to, you know, it's maximize patients of view. So they mm-hmm. weren't just locked up in the cell. It really, he believed in, he came from this like fresh air sunlight to help with the rehabilitation of these patients. Yeah. And um, so it was used to like offset to maximize patient views from the windows and to minimize uh, them seeing each other. Oh, okay. And it was also so built designed so that the people who cared for them could overview them. So I'm very curious. I need to like actually go look at what this kind of plan looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll post a picture of like right after it was built. It's huge. It's like monumental looking. Holy cow. It's crazy. Okay. So let's talk about in history this place. So this is in Jackson, Mississippi. Jackson, Mississippi is the capital of Mississippi, as I've said before. And um, the interesting part of this uh, institution is that how it was run obviously reflected the time period that it was in. Mm -hmm. So um, and it also kind of its fate was pretty much tracks the rise and fall of asylums in America. Mm. So it's like, you know, it came about during the heyday when Dorothea Dix, you know, came in, thank you, (laughs) (laughs) came in and, you know, helped build these asylums. And then of course there was, you know, the fall of the asylums where they went away. And that's why we have a lot of asylums now that are abandoned that haven't been torn down. And, um, 
We should go to the. We should <laughs> a lot of go paranormal to people, like <laughs> no, that's like their Disney World, right? Oh, that's so oh, we're such creepy people. <laughs> so you know, it opened during the pre-Civil War, and the patients mainly were you know populated with white people, mm-hmm. you know, that had mental illness or disabilities. So they were lumping mis- uh, disabilities with mental Ill- illness okay. at the time. And after the Civil War, they started taking more um, formerly enslaved Mm African-Americans. So they opened it up. And, of course, they still had them segregated. And they had them segregated through the whole time period. So this institution stayed open for about 80 years. Wow. And um, by the time it closed, like in 1935, it... it still had like one wing for African-Americans and the other wing for Caucasians. Hmm. And it, they did not become unsegregated until civil rights movement of the 1960s. Yeah. And they were in another institution. It also, let's see. Bum, bum, bum. So obviously, or not obviously, kind of <laughs> unexpected. Or no, Sorry. <laughs> Uh, words Jen 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 and words do not mix um ex- this is something you would totally expect um of course they the african american population in, as patients in this institution was overcrowded mm-hmm. and so they died more of respiratory illnesses like mm-hmm. tuberculosis because of the overcrowding yeah. and of course they were fed um more of the lower uh just what they could get by way yeah get by with so you know this this place was very expensive to begin with they were in debt to begin with they had you know patients they were overcrowded and it sounded like they kept you know having to build or um have more rooms more people in rooms than really that was good for it and yeah it grew and grew and of course you know going from like you know 100 something acres to like over a thousand acres, you know, it really kind of uh, sets the stage for, you know, good intentions, but mm-hmm. maybe towards the end, it really kind of needed to go away yeah. or, because it, they didn't have the finances to run it well. And like a place like that, if it's overcrowded, they've designed it for airspace and for, you know, open it, and you can't really the design doesn't work anymore, right? right. Like if you've got right. too many people in one spot, that doesn't happen. Exactly. Uh, of course, Mississippi writers like Eudora Welty, who is from Jackson, Mississippi, mm-hmm. and William Faulkner and Tennessee Williams, um, they all knew about, you know, this was like a really famous uh, mental institute and they used it a lot in their writings or referred to it in their writings. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got kind of this very Southern Gothic feel to it. Mm. In the 1900s, uh, the Institute's name was changed to something that was kind of less, like, scary, actually. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if it's less. I mean, Lunatic Asylum is pretty scary. (laughs) But they changed it to Mississippi State Insane Hospital. From Lunatic Asylum. From Lunatic So, like, maybe a half a step better. Yeah. I mean, at least you're saying hospital instead of asylum. Like, asylum is like... I don't know. We're not has, talking about healing with asylum. We're right. talking about keeping people away from you. And, and that's, you know, and I think a lot of their intentions was to heal people. Yeah. But as we will soon discover, as you probably already know, a lot of the times it was just a, a dumping ground for yeah. people that 
were kind of on the fringes of what's considered normal behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1935, uh, Basically, they changed the name to Mississippi State Hospital, which was a little bit more, I want to say, user-friendly. But that (laughs) happened when they built another institute um, that was named Whitfield, and it moved to the east of Jackson. And Whitfield is the name that I grew up with, knowing, Mm. you know, we always tease each other. It's like, yeah, you going to Whitfield? Like, you crazy? You going to (laughs) Whitfield? Like, we, you know, that's just something that was in our vernacular that growing up, you know, everybody knows about Whitfield. Maybe not so much about the Mississippi, you know, state insane asylum. Mm-hmm. Or a lunatic asylum. A lunatic asylum. Thank you. So some of the diagnosis that would get you in this asylum would be syphilis. Oh. Um, melancholy. melancholy. Melancholy? Just like depression? Oh, just wait. Uh, <laughs> Shit. Man- maniacal exhaustion. Can you, can you clarify that for me? Bipolar. Yeah. Um, poverty. Oh, shit. And uh, Pelagara? Pelagara? What is that? Right? Wait, hold on. Pelagara? Pelagara? Hold on. How do you spell it? P-E-L-L-A-G-R-A. G-R-A. And this is actually... um, Is it a disease? It's a disease that was pretty epidemic. uh, It's a vitamin B deficiency. It is during the 20th century South. And again, I think this goes back more to the poverty. It does. Like, like pellagra. Pellagra. Okay. Is a disease caused by low levels of niacin, also known as vitamin B3. It's marked by dementia, Mm -hmm. diarrhea, and dermatitis, also known as the three Ds. It can be fatal if left untreated. So so the dementia version of that, the dementia portion of that makes it like a mental disease to them. Right. Exactly. And it's because you don't get enough fish or poultry. Oh my God. So fixable. Or fortified bread or cereals because at that time they people were that. eating fatback molasses yeah. and cornmeal. Oh jeez. Also hysteria which was related to <laughs> women exactly being trouble, excessive <laughs> emotions. Jesus Christ, women, anxiety and sexual forwardness of women. Forwardness. Forwardness. Oh god, help us all. God forbid if you like sex. <laughs> And we've changed so much. (laughs) (laughs) And it was also disabilities. Disabilities was lumped in there with them, especially after the turn of the 19th, um, turn of the 20th century, right? Uh, More and more African-Americans with disabilities were put in there. And that's why, you know, overcrowding really became a big, huge issue. Oh, my God. It's so fascinating to see, like, the what mental health has how it has changed like i i knock it because i'm like we still don't do a good enough job no we like there is no question but damn look how far (laughs) look how how far far we've come come. but not far enough yeah the regression i'll talk about a little bit so some stories so i looked into this i was like there's got to be like some some stories and and the main thing um that the stories have come out was like people who have grown up knowing that they had families that went into this lunatic asylum 
back in the day and wondering whatever happened to him, right? So some of the stories that have come out was like um, Ellison Ben Bishop, who was born in 1842 in Itala County, Mississippi, served in the Confederate Army and raised eight children. Well, I'm sure his wife raised eight children. I was going to say that ain't a good way to go crazy or nothing. Right. In 1905, Mr. Bishop entered the asylum for acute mania, and uh, at let's see, he was dead by the end of the same year. Whoa! So maybe was it PSTD? PTSD? Thank yeah, you. because they didn't have a term for that. Because they until didn't have a what, term the, for that. The so, 50s or 60s, maybe. Right? So you know, as a soldier maybe coming later. back and then having all those kids, and then you know. So, you know, it's really funny. Like, you think about PTSD and that, like, yeah. I mean, war now causes massive PTSD. Can you imagine, like, that hand-to-hand combat shit that they oh would have had God. to do? In fields, cold, and I mean, being left, watching and, people just... Right? I mean, and then, like, when you say, like, eight kids, I mean, like, you can have sensory overload as a perfectly healthy, mentally oh, healthy absolutely. person. <laughs> right. Even if you did not participate, I mean, just being around eight kids, period, Jesus. even if you did not participate in the raising, which I'm automatically going to the assumption that his wife was basically, but it may not be the case. But even still, if it wasn't the case, just being around eight children yeah. is enough to drive somebody mentally crazy. Really? And by the way, just like PSA, school teachers are superheroes. Are superhero <laughs> saints. Especially my kids. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so another story is Mr. Whitfield and his family loaded their belongings in a truck in the early 1900s and left Kentucky for Mississippi because of the cotton fields and um, not so much sharecropping, but he became a tenant farmer. Mm-hmm. So the difference between tenant farming and sharecropping, tenant farmers, they actually own the land that they raise their produce or cotton on, where mm-hmm. sharecroppers don't own the land right. and are expected to give a share of the crop to the owners of the land in order, and then they take the rest for profit. Okay. Um, but so he was a tenant farmer, um, and this is like right during the Depression, And so they had little to eat, and it was basically, again, cornbread, milk, and syrup. And, Mm. you know, the dad, being the dad, made sure his five kids ate first. Oh, bless. And therefore, um, he didn't get enough nourishment, and this is where the the vitamin B deficiency Mm. came into play, and he developed dementia and was sent to the asylum, and then he died. Oh, you know, that makes shortly. me want to cry. You know, so there's so many of these stories like this of these relatives that have been passed down mm. um, that they don't know what's, you know, really what has happened or they do know. These are people that do know more so than those that don't. But there's so many of these people out there. So people had family members that went into the asylum, but they actually didn't they realize that they had died or they, they had died. Know, yeah, they didn't because know they you were talking unmarked there. graves and all that unmarked kind of stuff. Graves, oh, right. my God. And again, we'll loop back to that. There was a uh, Beulah Pritchett Jackson who was admitted to the asylum after her husband was sentenced to prison for murder around the 1900s. And her husband was later remarried. He, obviously, he got out. Oh, Jesus Christ. And was remarried. And then he listed her as dead in the census, though she actually died decades later. <sighs> um, and basically, he just like left her in there. 
to rot while he went to prison. I know. So also it was a dumping ground for wives of husbands Mm. who, you know, wanted to move on i guess i was gonna or, say because you can call hysteria on just about anybody on, on, yes exactly. i mean like because and, you're the one that has the authority to say it you and know? if you're yeah and if you're speaking about women and that was kind of like a theme oh, that was fuck. a running theme during the mm-hmm. time then you know but i don't know if you from the name beulah i don't know if you recognize that during our episode two talking about a rose for beulah <gasps> that beulah cawthon uh-uh. 25 25 who had the uh, bipolar disorder and who also beulah's parents woke up at midnight and found her over their bed with a hatchet yes she was sent to the hospital <gasps> and basically died there she was actually oh. moved when the hospital moved back in 1935 uh, and died in the East Mississippi State Hospital in 1968 in Meridian. So she was a patient there as well. Oh my God! Yeah. So full circle. Full circle. Um, so oh, if you haven't listened to Beulah. episode two with a rose for Beulah, we talked about Holly Springs. Mm-hmm. And Holly Springs again during this time, like after this, during the Civil War and after the Civil War, was like a hotbed for um, yellow fever. Yeah. Which is obviously a huge thing. Yeah, that was like our first reference to yellow fever. And then it like came up like four more times. Well, yes, <laughs> it's, it's like, like all, all over the place. <laughs> and, you know, and I have a feeling like a lot of the paranormal <clears throat> stuff that we reference is like a lot of the places are hotbeds for mm-hmm. yellow fever. Yeah. Okay, so just, let's talk about the discovery of, let's go back to now and talk about the discovery of the patients. Oh, I'm blown away by the Beulah thing. Wow, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I know. No. Go listen to me episode two, right? And and that's the thing, too. A lot of things that I find out, like something that we've already talked about, I'm yeah. like, we don't know that then. But now we know. We can just draw it back around, exactly. man. This is what gets loyal listenership, right? Exactly. You have to listen you to have two to listen now. To everything. So, um, there was about 11,000 patients who died at the state asylum in Mississippi mm. from 1855 until it closed in 1935. God, that's so many people. The findings, um, so finding an asylum unmarked grave is really not that big a deal. It happens more than you think it does. Mm. Um, and usually what happens is they just relocate the graves, burying them, and nothing else is said. What makes this kind of special is that it happened on a medical campus of a university. Mm-hmm. And because it's university-related, uh, people in academics and medicine found it extremely important and vital. And so instead of just reburying, which is the cheapest solution to it, mm-hmm. they want to do something with this. Oh, so, yeah. I was like, yeah, leave it to the city. And they're just going to like pretend like it never happened. Right. And so what has happened is that they formed an Asylum Hill Research Consortium. So seven universities have become involved in this project. And the project is like, you know, the Asylum Hill project. And the seven universities are the University of Mississippi Medical Center, the University of Mississippi, which is Ole Miss, Mississippi State University, Jackson State uh, University, Millsaps College, the University of Southern Mississippi, which is Hattiesburg, um, and Texas State University, and the University of Idaho. I don't know how (laughs) Idaho got thrown in. 
but they thank you, know, you idaho thank you idaho for caring about the south <laughs> Oh, my God. I was like, Mississippi, 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 Texas, Idaho. Right. Okay. So they want to preserve the bodies um, in a memorial. So they want to build a memorial and preserve the uh, the bodies for study. And they also, one of the things about this burial ground that they've uncovered is everybody was buried in a pine box. Mm-hmm. And so the pine coffins were actually built by the patients in their workshop there on the grounds. Well, that's not terrifying or anything. (laughs) And they used Mississippi pine. So they were very (laughs) self-sufficient. I guess. You know, they had enough people dying that they made it kind of an in-house, you know, industry. I would like to say that the, like, farming part was self-sufficient. The other part... They were very self-sufficient. I mean, because nobody was giving them money. Otherwise, they would have had to put them in a mass grave. Yeah, that's true. And so this does give them some dignity. Yeah. But it also helps kind of preserve them a little bit. I mean... Wooden boxes disintegrate, yeah. and you know, if you have skeletal remains, they're going to get the 30s. all, yeah, you know. But it it definitely separates them a little bit more um, than just a mass grave. Mm-hmm. So what this consortium wants to do is it wants to um, safely use uh, acid-free containers to put each body in for examination by the researchers. Um, because they want to learn a little bit more about the way mental illness was treated more than a century ago. Mm-hmm. And they're also using it so that, you know, the public can learn about the asylum's history and more importantly, so that the loved ones uh, c- could possibly find yeah. their relatives and know what happened. So are they doing them. like DNA testing? They're on doing their DNA testing and, stuff? and, oh, okay. and stuff like that. <clears throat> um, and, you know, the thing with this proposed center that they're wanting to put is they're wanting, you know, really to, like I said, contribute to the time when mental illness was stigmatized or misdiagnosed and to help people find, you know, their relatives. And that is my story of the That's Mississippi State awesome. Lunatic Asylum. And interestingly enough... It has a enough, happy ending, it does have, it does It's have not a happy, 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 but... Right. Um... One of the interesting things is that the Cobb Institute of Archaeology at Mississippi State, which is a pretty big thing on the campus of Mississippi State University, um, they were like one of the first to take the first 35 bodies or, Mm. no, sorry, 66 bodies or, or, you know, the first bodies that were found Mm -hmm. um, and, and study them. And Chad and I were teaching at Mississippi State during the time that this was happening. No we way. had no idea. So those bodies were like located like just down the street from us. Holy cow. While we were teaching there and we had no idea. I would have totally have loved to. Of course, I probably couldn't have gone in and like looked or seen or but I probably could have talked to somebody about it there at the Cobb oh. Institute. And that's one of the reasons like, you know, Mississippi State, you know, it's, it's more of an archaeologist. It definitely became an archaeologist dig mm. after they found the bodies. Mm-hmm. But they are expecting at least to recover between five to seven thousand bodies. Holy shit. In this cemetery. And it's really wow. cool because they're as an archaeologist dig, they are taking into account that the bodies that are on top are the most recent bodies mm-hmm. and as they dig further and further down it pretty much goes to the time period of 
you know, what was going on. Yeah, like the 1850s back when it started. Right. Holy cow. So there's there's actually a ton of pictures. And because this is like an academic thing, people are doing like their thesis paper oh, yeah. on it and their doctor. Doctor, I don't even know what that's called. See, now I want to go and like look at the stories yes. of the people who have found that like their family members were in there and stuff like there that. There is a you podcast, know? and I'll put this in the show notes of one um, of the women who has done her thesis on this. She did a podcast and it interviewed some of the relatives of the people who knew oh, cool. that their family members were there telling their stories um, and talking about it. I have not listened to it. Um, but I definitely spring break am. is coming. Spring break is I'll have time to listen to it, but I will put like you know, uh, show notes, links, and all that, and I'll put some of the pictures. The pictures they have tons of pictures. Cool, and it's it's amazing and sad, and just crazy because you know they like 1935 they closed the um, state hospital in Jackson down. And I think at the time that they closed it, they had about 2,000 inmates, inmates, sorry, patients. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean. And then, and they had about 800, like, medical nurses and doctors there working at the oh, same time. Yeah. It's an expensive. Right. Well, mental care is expensive. And yeah. I think that's, that's what happened. And so they went and relocated to Whitfield. And there was also in East Mississippi, which is where Beulah ended up. And that was in Meridian. And I've lived in Meridian before and Mm -hmm. I've heard tales. And I don't think I shared this with you. When I was working in Meridian, one of the guys I was working with used to live very near the East Mississippi um, uh, mental hospital. Mm -hmm. And he said, like back in the 70s, one of the inmates had escaped and they were bucked naked running across his yard and the police or the security people who were chasing him shot him point blank in the back and killed him in his yard he was obviously very traumatized by it but this is kind of the attitude that came with you know these people in the mental hospital is they were not worth preserving it was better to shoot somebody on the loose than to like humanely capture them and take them back to and the give hospital. them some fucking fish i mean like the whole <laughs> the vitamin fish. b deficiency I think thing. probably by the 70s they figured they out. figured out the like the what what did say? It was, what's it called peg blah i don't remember the name yeah. of the thing starts with a p has a g in it right that's, yeah yeah that that deficiency you'll just call it the vitamin b deficiency because yeah. that's basically what it was um and so that was like one of the first stories i remember hearing about you know the Meridian East Mississippi Mental Hospital. And I think you did mention that when we talked about Beulah, too. Oh, I may that have. That story, yeah. Oh, because sorry that, that, that for No, don't time. apologize, because there are people who haven't listened to it and need to go back and I need to go back. Now. Like, Beulah. Beulah. Right. Oh, so that was strange. That was fascinating. It is it's strange. And I think, like, when the 1980s came around, when, like, the Bush, uh, not the Bush, but the Reagan administration um came in and shut down a large portion of the mental hospitals because they're all government funded Mm -hmm. so and they cost a lot of money understandably but but what happened to people who seriously have like violent um, mental illness or mental illness of any kind that you cannot integrate into society is they put them in jail yeah so now we've kind of gone back to where you know families I think family definitely have more options than they did back mm. in the day. And we're not, especially in Mississippi, we're not 
as poor as we were, where you just kept your family members in. Yeah. Um, but but still. still, we're still pretty poor and mental health help is expensive. And so it's either, you know, you take care of your family member until you can't. And then, you know, where do they go? Jesus, I would like we could get into a whole long conversation about like corruption in the pharmaceutical industry <laughs> and the government. And because uh. seriously, like this, you hear this all the time. I have a lot of my family, like my my immediate family, you know, sisters in law, brothers in law, deal in the nursing, you know, the nursing um, field and EMTs. And the number of times you hear like, if they don't go to jail, they go to the ER. They don't go to the jail, they go to like the only psych ward that's still available. Like Alabama shut down all the fucking psych yes, hospitals. Yes, and it's definitely overcrowded now. There's yeah, no, I mean, there's no, and I mean, so, and there are people, you know, like the opioid crisis, there are all kinds of things that factor into this. And, um, Jesus Christ, like now I just want to say, like, we love you. Please take your medication. If you don't have medication, try, oh my God. you know, like we <laughs> text yes. us or some shit because yes. we want to help. May, we will put some hotline you numbers know. up there because, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a serious deal. It is. Absolutely. Well, that was, well, that was a Debbie Downer. <laughs> <laughs> we went from fun sex with aliens. Yeah. But d- damn, this is a good episode. <laughs> Come back next week. Absolutely. (laughs) So you can find us on Facebook at the Strange South Podcast and also on Instagram. Instagram. (laughs) Don't. Okay. Okay, Marley. You talk now. (laughs) Instagram. That's going to be. So if you've never listened to the Easter eggs that Patrice puts at the end of this podcast, don't ever shut it off when the crickets come on. Wait until the cicadas finish singing and then figure out what she says afterwards, because the dumbest ass thing we said during the whole podcast shows up again. All right. We love you. Come back. We love you. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Down has begun now my time on earth is done if she's actually real these are hers they're for her when I get up they won't be here family and all these plans they have for me I know it won't be easy but hold your head up Hybrid David Alien Babies. What?